This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 344. Leadership is not management. Leadership is the act of doing something before you're sure it's going to work. And if you don't feel like an imposter when you're leading, you're a sociopath. Hi, and welcome to the special edition of the Read to Lead podcast. I'm Jeff Brown, and I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. Why is this a special edition of the podcast? Well, it's for many reasons, not the least of which today's guest has had a special impact on yours truly. More on that in a moment. That special guest is prolific writer and author Seth Godin. And we're going to be diving into his new book released just last week called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. I plan to ask Seth to share about trusting yourself enough to do what you were made to do, not what you were maybe brainwashed to do, why he believes that seeking reassurance is futile, why he feels authenticity is a trap, and much more. If you enjoyed today's conversation and you haven't already, I encourage you to check out episode 66 of the podcast, the first time I interviewed Seth. That can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 066. Seth Godin's books have been bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 35 languages. He's also the founder of the Alt-MBA and the Akimbo Workshops, online seminars that have transformed the work of thousands of people. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, quitting, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. You might be familiar with his books, Lynchpin, one of my favorites, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. His book, This Is Marketing, was an instant bestseller around the world. In addition to writing and speaking, Seth has founded several companies, including Yo-Yo Dine and Squidoo. His blog, which you can find by typing Seth into Google, is one of the most popular in the world. His podcast is in the top 1% of all podcasts worldwide. It's called Akimbo. In 2018, Seth was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. More than 20,000 people have taken the powerful Akimbo workshops he founded, including the Alt-MBA and the Marketing Seminar. His latest book is called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work, and it's already a bestseller. Seth, welcome back to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm so honored to be part of this. You have really built up a body of work, so thank you for doing that. Thank you for being here. I think you know that uh, one of your books, 17 or so years ago, I think it was now, Purple Cow, kind of reignited this love for reading and uh, was responsible for this podcast. And now I'm writing a book about intentional, consistent reading. And and you're the guy that started it all. So 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 thank you for being here and, and thank you for being you. I sat down and read the entire book from cover to cover yesterday. And in addition to questions I want to ask you, Seth, there's a, a couple of quotes from the book I just want to pull out and, and have you riff on, if that's sure. okay. Uh, and the first one comes early in the book that says, you were born to make art, but you've been brainwashed into believing you can't trust yourself enough to do so. Yeah, well, we can decode that a little bit. Mm. What does art mean? Art is not painting or even opera. Art is the generous act of a human being doing something personal, generous, that might not work. And all three pieces are essential. Personal, because you're doing it, not someone else. Generous, because you're doing it for someone else. You're not hustling. And might not work is key, because might not work means that there's a risk to it. You're not just putting truffles in a box of truffles. You're not just moving a widget from part A to part B. You're able to say, I made this. And someone else is able to say, it's not for me, sorry. 
And that is fraught, right? Mm. Because we were trained from first grade, maybe kindergarten, mm. to not screw up, to not do something that wouldn't work. So the whole idea of that might not work flies in the face of being a compliant cog in the industrial system. But when we're 60 or 80 and we look back on our lives, we don't keep track of how many times we obeyed the manager's orders. We keep track of that moment when we made something better. And I think that's what we're capable of. And I just wanted to remind people of that. Seth, talk about our culture's obsession with, quote unquote, the outcome and and, and why it's the process that, that really matters. Okay, so we're going super deep right from the start here. Uh, in an industrial setting, mm. there's no point in doing anything if it doesn't get you what you want. And in school, the way we report this is with the following question, will this be on the test? If you have ever said, will this be on the test? You've acknowledged that the only reason you're paying any attention whatsoever is because you're going to get something in return, which is an A. Mm. If there was no test, you wouldn't be there, right? So that's not where learning is. That's education. Learning is, I need, want, desire this piece of information, this skill, regardless of whether I get a prize beyond it. And so the practice is the act of showing up simply because the journey itself is worth it, whether or not we win. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when there isn't a pandemic in the world, 80,000, 100,000 people run the New York City Marathon and 99% of them know they will not win, <laughs> but they run it anyway. And so if you are obsessed with the outcome, if the only reason you're doing it is because it's going to work, then you can't do art because art is something that might not work. <laughs> so you can't have it both ways. And so the argument of the practice is if you have a method, it will always get you better outcomes over time than if you simply say, I will trade right this minute for an outcome. You know, I've, I've read a lot about imposter syndrome over the years, and oftentimes what I've read about it is how to, how to get around it, how to combat it. Uh, but you say it's something we should embrace. What, what happens when we embrace it instead? So what does it mean to feel like an imposter, a fraud, someone who has no right to show up? Well, what it means is you're leading because leadership is not management. Leadership is the act of doing something before you're sure it's going to work. And if you don't feel like an imposter when you're leading, you're a sociopath because you can't be sure it's going to work. You can't be sure you're qualified because you're leading. And so when that feeling shows up, the best response is, thank you. Thanks for letting me know I'm on the right path. Thanks for letting me know I'm working today. The same way if you're running and you feel tired, that's a symptom that you're running well. Feeling like an imposter is a symptom that you're leading. I've heard the question asked too, what would you do first or what would you do next if you knew you couldn't fail? But, but you say that we should start with a, with a different question. If we failed, would it be worth the journey in the first place? W would you expound on that? Lots of times we try to encourage people by saying, you know, if, you if you're sure you were going to succeed, what would you do? And the answer then is I would wish for three more wishes, invisibility and flight because <laughs> I was going to succeed. Uh, <laughs> But the question I like better is, if you're sure you're going to fail, would it be worth it anyway? Is it worth the journey? And that is a really juicy question for mm -hmm. me, because what it says is, I am still part of, I'm still engaged in this practice, that I still can point to the work and say, even if the outcome didn't follow, I'm glad I did it. I had good intent. I brought my skills to the table. I brought generosity 
to the situation. And next time, it's going to go even better. Well, when starting anything, I think it's not uncommon to seek validation or, or reassurance. And I like that you say that uh, reassurance is, is futile. Why, why, why is that? You're the only person who's ever said they like that I say that. (laughs) People hate this. They hate this. (laughs) Reassurance feels so good. Reassurance Mm. is this moment of saying, well, okay, maybe this is worth it. The problem is it doesn't last. As soon as you get some reassurance, you want more reassurance. As soon as you have said the outcome is all that matters and I got a little glimpse that the outcome is there, you need to be reminded of that again. It's back to this idea of doing it for the outcome. The alternative is to say, it doesn't matter whether I get reassured or not, I'm still doing it. The next best path is to say, I don't need Oprah to call and I don't need a five-star review. I simply need to do the work because if I do the work without regard for reassurance, I am way more likely to do better work, which ironically, paradoxically, leads to better outcomes. Uh, riff number two, another quote uh, from the book I want to share and have you, have you expound on if you don't mind. Authenticity is a trap. Uh, there is nothing authentic about the next thing you're going to say or do or write. Your audience doesn't want your authentic voice. They want your consistent voice. Yeah. So how many episodes are we up to on Read to Lead? 340 something. So 340 times you've shown up (laughs) and you show up as a version of yourself. You probably show up if you have a headache. You probably show up if you're having a bad day. You still show up. That's what your readers, your listeners want. They're not sitting around wondering how you really feel. They care about how they feel and where they're going. And consistency is what the market demands. The consistency of saying, I stand for something and here's the best version of myself, not whatever I feel like. I think that people who talk about authenticity are mostly looking for an excuse where they're saying, yeah, well, I said what I felt like it didn't work. Blame them. I was being authentic. Yeah, no, that doesn't work that way. We are here to lead and leadership is voluntary. Following is voluntary. And if people aren't following you, it's not because of your authentic voice. It's because of the voice you chose. Mm, well said. Um, let's talk about credentials for a minute. You say that the system established credentials to maintain the consistency of our industrial output, but over time, they've been expanded uh, to create a roadblock. How so? Well, if I'm interested in outcomes, I'm also interested in deniability because mm. if the outcome doesn't show up, I need an excuse. And so the HR department has come up with a long list of credentials that it looks for. And we want to be able to say, don't blame me. Look at this. I I sorted for this credential. And so a lot of persistent racial injustice comes because of a form of credentialing, Mm. right? A lot of false, useless barriers based on expensive educational institutions show up. That There's no evidence whatsoever that someone who went to a famous college is better at almost any job than someone who went to a not so famous college. And that distinction is lost on people who are just looking for deniability. And so there's a huge opportunity to say, there are people out there who care, who have skills, who are leaning into it, who don't have a credential. Let's go find those people. Mm. Seth, why do you say that we need more bad ideas rather than more good ideas? That, that, that sounds counterintuitive. Well, I need more good ideas from other people, but the only way I'm going to get them is if they have the passion 
to put their bad ideas into the world so that we can Mm -hmm. sort them out. If you say, I'm not going to publish something until I'm sure I have a good idea, then you're never going to publish anything Mm. because the good ideas are busy hiding. And the only way to find them is to get your bad ideas out there. Because once you start pushing your bad ideas forward, some good ideas will slip in. And, you know, I talk about my blog, 7,500 blog posts later, Mm. I'm going to have a blog post tomorrow, but it's not because it's my best blog post. It's because it's tomorrow. (laughs) And I won't notice if it's my best blog post until weeks later. And I can tell you that, you know, by whatever measure you would like to apply to my blog, the posts that measure the best are not the ones I worked the hardest on, nor the ones that I was sure were the best. I remember starting out uh, blogging back in 2008 and being so concerned about criticism that I, I, I blogged under uh, another name for about a year until I got comfortable with the idea of putting, putting my name on it. Uh, tell me about Chip Conley. Chip Conley changed my life in 1983. Mm. And you know the world is really small. In 1983, 84, <laughs> When I was only 24, I met Chip, I met Guy Kawasaki, I met Tom Peters, I met Jay Levinson, just, you know, it's a small mm-hmm. world. But Chip did it because I was the second youngest person in my business school class and I was at sea. I was not feeling like I was succeeding. Mm-hmm. And on the fourth day, there was a little note in my uh, mailbox and it said, would you like to join our brainstorming session Tuesday afternoons at five in the anthropology department? And we met every Tuesday for three or four hours for a year. And there were five of us. And being part of something changed everything for me. Being seen, being connected, having this safe place to brainstorm. We came up with more than 10,000 business ideas together as a group. Mm. And that's all we did. No outcome was desired other than the act of doing it. And once you've been part of a group that comes up with 10,000 business ideas, you don't fall in love with business ideas anymore. And you do the ones that work the best. And knowing that I could be seen and treated with respect at that age when there was a scarcity mindset at business school, when people looked at everyone else as a competitor, it was miraculous. And I will never forget what Chip did. Uh, there's the use in your book uh, of this parenthetical yet. And I had to, had to laugh when I was reading this section of the book because I remember the first time I ever emailed you about the possibility of appearing on the show. And I dropped a few names of people who had said yes, podcast hadn't, hadn't launched. And, and you said something along the lines of, uh, that's a great list of guests for a podcast with no listeners. And then in parentheses, yet. Tell me a bit more about the, about the parenthetical yet. Yeah, the parenthetical yet definitely saved my career more than mm. once. First, I'll say that no one wants to be hustled. Mm. No one wakes up in the morning saying, I wish someone would invade my personal space, <laughs> uh, shade the truth, and push me because they need something. But, and it's a huge but, we need to tell ourselves a story because the first time you get on a bicycle, you fall off. And the first time you tried to sing, you sound terrible. And the first time you tell a joke, you're not funny. <laughs> And it goes down the list. You have to add the word yet. I told a joke and no one laughed yet. Because as soon as you say yet, you leave room for, but it's going to get better. And every podcast, including mine, including yours, starts with no listeners. Everyone. Yet. And then, and then, and then. And so what we see around us, the built world, the the modern culture, it's all about yet. It's all things that started when they didn't work. And then they did. 
I mentioned uh, criticism earlier and struggling with that early on. Can you talk about how not all criticism is the same? It's unnatural to feel that all criticism is not the same, but it is Mm. not the same. Uh, I was walking on the Upper West Side of Manhattan uh, 10 years ago, past this little pocket playground. And from inside the playground, I hear uh, that sing-song voice of a four-year-old taunting someone, making fun of them. And then I realized they're taunting me. They're making fun of my haircut and the way I'm walking. And I got to tell you, kid didn't lay a glove on me. Whereas if, if I was six, I would have been crushed by that experience. Mm. But if there's some random kid in a playground on the Upper West Side of Manhattan making fun of my haircut, tough. I don't <laughs> care, right? Mm. And so I haven't read my Amazon reviews in eight years, 10 years, because a one-star review will not make me a better writer. It just tells me the person who read that book, it wasn't for them. It doesn't say anything about the book itself, that J.K. Rowling and Harper Lee both have more one-star reviews than I do, because they have more reviews than I do, not because they wrote a worse book. So don't read them. Mm. On the other hand, when Nikki Papadopoulos says, I'm your editor, and I think you should change the name of your book, my answer is yes, instantly, because her criticism is worth a million dollars, right? She has something to say to me based on genre and history and insight and empathy. And I'd be a fool not to listen to her. So yeah, we have to treat different kinds of criticism differently. Ideas come from a lot of places. One of my favorite places ideas come from is books. Seth, how would you sum up the impact of, of books on, on your life, on, on your business? So books are special for a few reasons. The first one is that they have a Proustian impact on a lot of people who were lucky enough to grow up the way I did, which is they represent curation and thoughtfulness and a lot of, I mean, no one writes a book in 10 minutes. (laughs) Um, And for other people, it's a problem because it reminds them of discipline and school and being bored, which is why most people in the United States only read one or two books a year, which Mm. is astonishing and sad. But the other thing a book does in the nonfiction world is it's all of it in one place. That's not the way a blog post works. That's not the way a YouTube video works. Here it is in one place. I can hand it to someone else. And so the reason I bother with books, I can reach way more people with a blog post, is because I want someone who receives a book to give it to someone else. Because ideas that are spread, that are shared, change our culture. And they do it in a concentrated form, not widely, but in pockets. And so the very idea of your podcast is so generous and brilliant because what you're saying is this isn't for everybody, but for the people this is for, you can create a circle and make a change happen. And you know, I still remember reading The War of Art. I still remember reading The Art of Possibility. I still remember listening to Patti Smith's Just Kids. The very day I did it, I remember each of those moments. There are books that I read and reread and reread year after year. And there are other books that I touch and don't remember anything about them. And the last part of my rant is bookshelves are super special. Bookshelves remind me of what's in a book without me having to read it again. And I don't get that from my Kindle. I don't get that from almost any other thing in the world, which is to be able to look at a thing right around me and go, that, thank you for reminding me. We need that. Is there anything else from the book, Seth, that I've not asked about that you wanted to make sure you had the chance to, to talk about? Well, one of the 
dangers that some people, not you, fall into if they read too much is they're just mm. consuming the ideas. They're not doing anything with the ideas. Mm-hmm. And one of the rants in the book is about learning how to juggle. And the short version is juggling is not about catching. Juggling is about throwing. And if you are waiting to learn how to catch, you are going to wait a very long time. <laughs> you have to learn to throw. If you learn to throw, the catching takes care of itself. And so the magic of nonfiction books is that if you actually do what's inside, you learn to throw. So, you know, last night I made pizza for some distant visitors and um, I'm way better at making pizza than I used to be. (laughs) And I don't make it exactly the way they say in the cookbook, but, you know, between the wood-burning oven and the Sullivan Street dough and everything else, I have a hundred or a thousand little things I do that I learned only because it's a hundredth or a thousandth time I've made the thing. (laughs) And I could still be reading the book, waiting for the perfect moment to make pizza. And then I never would have made it. Well, the book again is called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. Is this what, book 19, book 20? 20. 20. 20. Congratulations. Uh, Seth, thank you again for your time and for being a part of the Read to Lead podcast once again. I hope this moment would come again and the six-year wait was was definitely worth the wait. Worth it for me. And thank you for being so patient and so generous with all of this. I appreciate your ruckus. Thank you, Jeff. If you have yet to dig into the work of Seth Godin, I want to ask, what the heck are you waiting for? I'm going to put links to many of those resources I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, all those things that Seth is involved in. I'll make those easy for you to find by curating those at uh, the show notes page created just for this episode. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 344 for episode 344. I love getting your feedback on the podcast and specific episodes. If you have anything you'd like to let me know, you can reach out to me directly, Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. And if you don't mind the occasional email from me in your mailbox, I encourage you to grab my free resource on the 12 best business and personal growth books. That includes not only my take on each of those 12 books, but thoughts from previous guests. Just visit the website and look for the form at the top right of the page. That's readtoleadpodcast.com, of course. In the coming weeks, we'll be hearing from authors like Robert Rosenberg, Shelley Archambault, John Benedict Steenkamp, Brian Sanders, Arlene Pelicane, and next week, it's Stephen Shapiro, author of the book Invisible Solutions. That will do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, as always, leaders read and readers lead. Read.